about this Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome everybody. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd just like to welcome you if you're visiting. We are in the midst of a study in the book of Acts. I don't know if you can see the screen. It's so bright outside. It's wonderful. Amen. We're in the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church. And today, what I'd like to talk about is the fact that we forget... That God has an agenda. We forget sometimes that God has an agenda. We're in chapter 8. And we're really not going to get very far this afternoon, this morning, this afternoon. And I'm actually only going to read three verses. And I'm sure we're probably only going to end up doing, well, let's see. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We are in the second portion or the second section now of the book of Acts. The outline is, some of you may have remembered when we did our introduction to the book a few months ago, the outline is such that the theme of the book is the spread of the gospel from a a small city called Jerusalem to Rome, which is a far-flung destination, if you like. And chapter 1 through to chapter 7 talks about the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And that's what we have already looked at. The birth of the church in Jerusalem. The second section, which is where we find ourselves at least today, is about the expansion of that early church. The expansion of the church from Jerusalem beyond into Samaria And we're going to see at a later stage, actually even further afield, even still. The third section, chapter 10 through to chapter 12, talks about the opening of the gospel now to the Gentiles in a wider sense. The fourth section is chapter 13 through to to chapter 28. And it talks about the spread of the gospel throughout Asia Minor and Europe. And eventually Rome. And what we're going to see is 
the fulfillment of the words of Jesus as spoken in Acts chapter 1, if you remember. Now, I say that we're in the second section of the book of Acts for three reasons. Three reasons. As we said last week, the spotlight is now shifting off of Peter and John onto other characters. Last week we met who? Stephen. Stephen the deacon martyr who put up a phenomenal defense under trial. Not a defense for himself, but a defense of the truth regarding Jesus Christ and his mission. Amen? Now, in this chapter, we're going to begin to look That's chapter 8. We're going to begin to look at who? Saul? No. Okay. I thought maybe some of you guys had read ahead. What happened to the Acts um, quiz the other night? (laughs) All right. Acts chapter 8. We're actually going to be looking at one of the other deacons that we met last week. And it's Philip. Then when we get to chapter 9, we will then be formally introduced to one of the most amazing men to have ever lived. A man set set apart by God in an unprecedented fashion. Paul the Apostle. Now that's the first reason I say that we are now, or the first set of reasons why I say we are now in the second section of the book of Acts. The second reason why I say that we are in the second section of the book of Acts is because we will now see the emphasis that has been for so long on the Jews begin to shift where? To the Gentiles. From the Jews to the Gentiles. Up until now, who is being targeted with the good news? Who has been getting saved? Jews. Who has been sharing the good news? Jews. Jewish believers. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we get some clarity on on this point. And it says, verse 1, And when he, that is Jesus, had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, verse 2 to 4, Matthew names the disciples, right? Drop down to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But, verse 6, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we're going to come back to the Samaritans next week. But can you see the directive? Who were the disciples to reach out to? The lost sheep of the house of Israel or Jews. Matthew chapter 15, we have another interesting scenario. It says, verse 21, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. 
for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, you know what? To a degree, fellas, you know what? You're right. Because I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, regardless of that, help me. Verse 26, and if, and if anything, Jesus continues, if you like, to, to resist. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. This ain't for you. It is, but not now. It's not for you. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus couldn't take it no more. He answered and said to her, oh, woman. Great is your faith. If you like, I didn't really come for you right now, but how can, how can I not respond? As it says in Hebrews, with regard to faith, it's, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But he that comes to God, you know what I'm saying, and believes that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, will find favor in that sense. And he says, you know what? Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I think there's only two people in the New Testament that Jesus exclaims at their faith. And, that, and, and both of them were Gentiles. Remember, the other one was the Roman centurion. Make, wow, I've not seen such great faith in, in, in the lives of the people that I came to, the house of Israel. This woman is living where? She's living in Tyre and Sidon. Does anybody know where that is, modern day? Um, Farida's not in here, because she would know. It's modern day Lebanon. And um, both of those cities are still there today. And there are two cities on the coast, just south of Beirut. And it wasn't, as some have foolishly suggested, that Jesus was prejudiced why he didn't want to help this woman. We know the reason why. We just saw it. Because the mission was not to the Gentiles yet. See, it was, it was just that the message had to go to the Jews first. They had been the chosen people of God. They had long looked for the Messiah. And it was proper that the gospel should be first offered to them. And as we've seen, thousands are coming to Christ. But since then... That is 1,900 years ago. We have seen very few Jewish people come to know Christ, relatively speaking. 1,900 years ago, but recently, in this, oh, not this century, but the last century, because we just switched over, right? The last century, we've seen more Jewish people become Christians than any other time in history. Now that tells us something. Now, someone suggests that the first believers, I say suggest, it's clear from the text. Who are the first group of people that are getting saved? That Peter and John have all been sharing the gospel with. Who is it that's getting saved? It's Jews. By the thousands. But then what you see is progressively over history, especially when you get into the, like the second and the third century, who's now getting saved? Gentiles, and very few Jews, and it's been like that 
since then up until the 20th century. But now we're seeing more Jewish people become Christians than ever. The Bible possibly makes reference to this in Romans chapter 11 verse 25 where it says that blindness in part has happened to Israel. When? Until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's a telling verse. Someone said that the first Christians were Jews and the last Christians will be Jews. See, this is another indicator that we are living when? In the last days. Okay? If our second reason was demographics, our third reason would be geographics. Up until now, where have the apostles declared the message and set up shop, as it were? There we go. Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where they are shepherding a massive church of up to about 10,000 people. But now we're going to see the progressive fulfillment of that which the Lord Jesus declared in the very first chapter of this book. And we from this point will see the extended, I don't know if you remember this, the extended ministry of Jesus. They call it the book of Acts. That's not really the, the clearest definition for the book. We're going to see the extended ministry of Jesus through the power of the Spirit in the apostles and now particularly the other disciples. And they begin to move from Jerusalem outwards. Incidentally, both Stephen and Philip have Gentile or Hellenistic, non-Jewish, but Greek names. And they're being used by God. They're Jews. Hellenistic Jews. But now you can begin to see that something's happening. If, if chapter 1 through chapter 7, which is our first section of Acts, if chapter 1 through 7 was all about local missions, then chapter 8 and onwards begins the story of the church on national missions, which eventually will lead to world missions. Can you see the progression? Okay, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That is the death of Stephen back in the previous chapter. This first part of verse 1 would have been better placed at the end of chapter 7. The chapter division here is not inspired as we continue to remind you, repetition for reinforcement, and all the teachers said amen. Chapter divisions were added much later on by the translators, approximately in the 15th century. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That is the death of Stephen. Saul watched a man die unfairly. And a man who, in the process of dying, prayed for the, prayed for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him. Saul didn't throw any of the stones, but he was consenting to his death. 
And maybe Saul had heard about the way that Jesus, Stephen's master, had died. And his similar forgiving attitude whilst being tortured. Do you remember then there was an earthquake and darkness covered the whole earth, at least that part of the earth. I suspect even if Saul wasn't there on the spot at Calvary, at Golgotha, he might have been somewhere where he said, whoa, how comes the place is getting dark all of a sudden in the middle of the day? I wonder if he remembered that. And then, whilst considering that, looked at Stephen in similar fashion. Stephen, whilst being stoned, you know, remarks about the heavenly vision of Christ. The heavenly vision of Christ Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of God. Wow. How hard it would be to forget this day's events. Well, Saul kept a watchful eye on the outer garments, on the coats of the stone-throwing executioners. Just as guilty as them, because he consented or he agreed, the word could even mean to be gratified or pleased or even take pleasure in the stoning. That's how twisted Saul was. You know, Jesus said a time would come when those that persecute believers would do so thinking that they were doing God a service, would do so thinking that they were pleasing God. This describes Saul exactly. And he was there, maybe not as a direct but an indirect participant, to an incident that he would never be able to forget. This man, Saul, who will later on become Paul, the great apostle, said after his conversion in Acts chapter 22, whilst now sharing actually the same gospel message as Stephen, later on in his life, in Acts 22, says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Saul later on, after being saved, evidently looked back on this stoning event with disdain. And it was something that was indelibly etched into his memory. Have you ever done or experienced things in the past that are indelibly etched in your mind? Things that you regret. Things you wish that you could erase. Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. Can you see how important it is to share the gospel? Stephen had shared the gospel. And he'd lost his life as a result of it. Can you see how important it is to share the gospel? Particularly with those who are bound up in false religion. Like Saul was. He thought he knew God. But like it says in Galatians, it's not about whether or not you, you know him. The question is, does he know you? Or me? 
Does Saul at this point seem like a man who would ever get saved? Does Saul at this point look like a man who, 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 who could ever get saved? No. Actually, we see the opposite, don't we? Yet we see how God uses, watch, terrible circumstances. Terrible circumstances, the stoning of a man. We would look and say, what a waste of a life. God, how could you make that happen? You know why we say that? Because we forget that God has an agenda. Terrible circumstances. Yet God is going to use these terrible circumstances to reach out to a man who eventually would respond to the call of salvation. I heard years back an analogy that really helped me. When you look at individuals and you think, man, this brother, this sister, so hard-hearted, so stiff-necked, don't want to repent. Don't want to listen to the word. Don't want to obey God. And they know it. They know the Bible to be true. They agree with the Bible. But yet they won't obey the Bible. You were like. The analogy is, you know what? Sometimes individuals like, I think myself, I'm a a classic example of the Hollywood car chase scene. Where a fast car, fast and furious, going in one direction, like 150 miles an hour, and it does a 180, like handbrake turn, and within milliseconds, it's going in the opposite direction. That was me. When I heard the gospel, I'd be like, what? I'm going to where? Because of my sin. Man, I mean, I know that I'm a sinner, but I had no, I had no appreciation of the fact that, boy, my sin was going to take me to an eternal damnation in hell, in separation from God. I was like, and that was me. (laughs) You would see me one day and then see me the next day and think, you ain't the same. You're not the same person. I was changed dramatically, just, just like my wife too. We got saved on the same day. Hey. And Helen stopped smoking, cigarette and drugs. She stopped drinking. She stopped swearing. We were together. We stopped having sex. Like overnight. You'd be like, whoa. Be like whirlwind. Well, that's some conversions. And thank the Lord by his grace, he's kept me nearly 20 years now. And Helen too. And some of you too. But how many of you know, not everybody does the handbrake turn and is converted like that. Some people turn a little bit like, you know, the QE2. Right. The QE2, if you don't know, is a large passenger liner. Now, the QE2, you'd be like, all right, um, starboard or whatever. What's left on the boat? Any, where's Ephraim? We need Ephraim. He used to go to nautical school. What's, what's left? How do you say left in ship, in boating terms? Port. Stop. Turn left. The captain says, yeah. And it's like, he comes down like two, three minutes later and says, hey, didn't I, didn't I say we need to turn left? And the guy was turning the, the wheel if they still got them, right? He'd be like, I, I did. And he did. But because the, the, sh- the ship is so large, 
It takes 10 miles to turn around. See, some people's conversion is not the same as yours. And we can't expect that people are going to get saved just because they hear the gospel once. We hope that they will. But just because they don't doesn't mean that God ain't working. Amen? Now, Saul, like the QE2, is a man on a journey of conversion. Very often the Lord will use the strangest of circumstances. And this is what we need to hear today. Sometimes the Lord will use the strangest of circumstances to fulfill his agenda. Even using the death of a believer. You know, we have recently experienced the same, haven't we? With Brother Sandeep. He's gone. And it's, and it's strange. And it's hard for, for some, very difficult for others to come to terms with that. See? Who knows how the Lord will use our brother's pain and suffering to save someone else. In this we see the need to share the gospel. Particularly, even with regard to Sandeep. Particularly with those in false religion. Just like Saul, it might take time for the word to have an effect. Don't be discouraged. Especially when you're praying for Members in your family. Don't be discouraged. How many of you know that from this, we can learn a a lesson in persistence? We live in a microwave, McDonald's, cash point, I want my money right now, society. We don't want to wait for nothing. Well, the Bible ain't going to conform to 21st century standards in that sense. That mean. And anything that's really worth anything takes time. Microwave carbonara. <laughs> then things ain't good for you. That mean. So how many of you know that we can learn a lesson in persistence, especially when the candidate seems the least likely? Especially then. Verse 1 says, at that time, a great what? A great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. Paul, in writing this second epistle to Timothy, who was his son in the faith, right? Paul, in writing this, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10, he says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine. See, this is a disciple. This ain't just a Sunday, come and warm a blue chair, type of high by kind of Christian, right? This is a disciple. And I was having a discussion yesterday with um, someone, I'm not sure if he's here. And we were talking about possibly the word Christian and disciple being synonymous. So if you're Christian, you ain't a disciple. You have to question whether you're a Christian. But that's another argument for another day, right? But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love and 
perseverance, verse 11, and persecutions. My afflictions. Hello. See, this is what you embrace. Hi. Hi, Crystal. This is what you embrace when you say, hey, I, I want to become a follower of Christ. I want to be a disciple. Well, welcome. <laughs> Not to Butlins. Welcome to the narrow road. Narrow, lonely road. Afflictions. What, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. We will progressively explore these occasions in these different places when we begin to follow the footsteps of Paul at a later date. He says, what, per- he says, what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Notice Paul mentions one word twice in verse 11. Persecutions. Then a third time, Watch verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. No, it doesn't say that. Yes, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, you've got some churches teaching that, you won't have to face any persecution. If you're facing persecution, hey, you're not heavy. If you was heavy, you wouldn't have to deal with any kind of difficulty and the whole list of stuff that we just read, afflictions and having to be long-suffering and persevering. Yes, and let's listen to Paul because he knows what he's talking about. He who, know, he who feels it knows it. And all who desire, and check it, it's not even anyone living godly yet. It says just desire. So you're sitting there, you're thinking like, hey, you know what? It's my desire to, oh, that's it. As soon as you say that, that's it. Brace yourself. That's why, Paul, that's why Peter says, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire. Why do you have to use that adjective? Consider it not strange concerning a fiery trial, which is to try you, to test you, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's, suffer, Christ's sufferings. You see, Jesus experienced it. Paul experienced it. And if you follow Paul like, you follow, like he follows Jesus, you're the individual who desires to live godly. Well, brace yourself, therefore, for persecution. This is a painting of a woman who has just been martyred under Nero between 60 and 70 A.D. It's a painting, right? No photographs back in those days. The persecution of Christians is the religious persecution that Christians have endured as a consequence of professing their faith, both historically and in the current era. In the 2,000 years of the Christian faith, about 70 million believers have been killed for their faith of whom 45.5 million or 65% were in the 20th century. I'm going to just let that sink in. 
In coming weeks, we will talk more about persecution, past, present, and future. How many of you know that in the midst of all of this madness, the Lord has an agenda? Next week, you're going to be terrified when I share with you what is happening and what is coming. Now, what was it that is his agenda? Let's look at the second and the third part of verse 1. At that time, a great persecution, not just a persecution, a great persecution. Remember, the Bible doesn't use words idly. A great persecution arose against the church, which was where? At Jerusalem, and they were all what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea, where? Samaria, except the apostles. Now, does that sound familiar? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? It's got a ring to it, right? Have a look at this map. Jerusalem is a city. That's where the disciples are. But this is not where the Lord wants them to stay. Hey, oh my goodness. We are, Pastor Ephraim mentioned it in his prayer, we are going to get missional around here. Well, you know that already, right? Because a bunch of us are going to Jamaica on a missions trip. Starts in Jerusalem, but it don't. It ain't supposed to stop in Jerusalem. It's supposed to move from Jerusalem, Jesus says, to Judea. Now, Jerusalem is a city. Judea is a province, or we would say a county. So you've got London, the city, but it's in a part. It's in Greater London, just like. Chelmsford is a city or a town in where? In Essex. Essex is the province and Chelmsford is the city, is a town. It's in Essex, right? Yeah. Amen. Someone looked at me kind of funny then. In the same fashion, Jerusalem is in Judea. So once you move from Jerusalem to Judea now, you're moving out. And if you continue further north, you hit the next province or the next county, which is what? Samaria, which is just north of Judea. God had an agenda. And trust me, it will do us well. We would experience so much less pain and agony and headache and heartache if we was just to get with a program. Now, am I saying, with regard to suffering, right? Am I saying that it was the Lord that orchestrated the stoning of Stephen? No, I'm not saying that. 
But I am saying that God used it. I am saying that God used that bad situation. And sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. Hot, scalding hot water. For many and varied reasons. Sometimes because of bad decisions on our part. How many of you have been there? Can I get a witness? Bad decisions on our part. I mention that because I've heard it four times this week. Four times. Bad, uninformed, ignorant, ungodly decisions that affect your life deeply. Deeply. And if only you could turn back the clock. Well, be encouraged this afternoon. I heard someone say something profound yesterday, and it's this. Listen carefully. It was only a bad decision if you didn't learn from it. That, that thing that you've done, and you, you don't even want to think about it. You don't, even want to, you don't want to talk about it. Well, it was only a bad decision if you do not learn from it. We live and we learn, they say, right? But how many of you know the Lord wants us to learn and live? We will all experience a bad result as, as, as a result of a bad decision. But we need to learn from those, bad, 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 those mistakes. We need to learn from them. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circumstances because it wasn't our bad decision, but we've been given bad advice by friends, by peers, by parents. Now, this one is a difficult pill to swallow. I mean, when it's your fault, hey, I mean, you're not going to beat up yourself. I mean, you will mentally, right? But you're not going to start punching yourself up and biting yourself and starving yourself, right? But hey, when somebody does that to you, oh my goodness, these kind of thoughts run through your mind. I could take that person, Scotland, in the boot of my car and get some derelict house somewhere. Hey, don't tell me them things. That, well, maybe it's only my mind them things run through. When somebody like, causes you to be in a difficult situation now, See, you thought that they knew what they were talking about. And you took their advice. And now you, they're gone. You're left holding or carrying the can, as it were. That's that. But then sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circles. And if you're there, I pray for you. You have to, you have to forgive them. But then sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. Why? Because God has an agenda. See, all of these circumstances, everything I just mentioned there, is redeemable. 
if. If, first of all, you love God. Despite what you did, or despite what you didn't do, despite what you did, sin of commission, despite what you didn't do, what you should have done, oh, I should have done that, sin of omission. If you love God, then the situation is redeemable. That's the first thing, if you love God. Second, if you're called according to his what? If you're called according to his agenda, if you're called according to his purpose, God can and will work it out. And he will use it to work things out of you and he will use it to work things out of me. Ouch. Classic verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Wow. I mean, that is already an encouragement. Talk about immediately, look, an injection of hope. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, ain't that the truth? I mean, that's most of us at the best of times. A lie? Let alone when you're broken and busted and hurting. But the Spirit himself, thank, thank the Lord, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us at those times with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's agenda. Can you see it? According to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that for who? Those who love God. We know that for those who love God, some things, a few things. Most things, no, all things work together for good. Or another translation says, listen, God works all things together for good. Another translation says, or God works in all things for good. For everyone? Hey, if you ain't saved, I suspect it's because you don't love God. And if, if you don't love God, this promise ain't for you. I'm sorry. It's like my son, when we, when years ago, when my son was younger, and my daughter, we take communion, and we wouldn't let him take communion. I mean, how do you, how do you feel as a part of a family at four or five years old, everyone's taking communion and you can't take it? Talk about feeling left out, but I did it for a purpose. So he would feel like, well, I thought I was a part of this family. You are, but. And until you come to a point where you begin to love God, 
There are benefits that you can't appreciate. See, trying to teach them while they're young that there is a dividing line. Thank the Lord, my son does love God. To the point where one night I was putting him to bed and I said, son, you know what? I love you so much. He got baptized and everything. Praise God. I said, son, you know, I love you so much. I said, you're my number one son. And he looked at me and he went, Psh. There's me with tears in my eyes and a welling up. He's like, Dad, you know, I love you so much. He said, Dad, you're my number two dad. <laughs> I was offended at first. <laughs> but then when I thought about it, I was like, hey. You, son, you love God. See, and if you love God, all things will work together for good. Plus, those who are called according to his agenda, his purpose. If you love him, he can turn your tragedy into a testimony. Even if you fail horrendously, like David. Oh my God, you look at... The, you, David's life was so amazing. And then it happened. And you couldn't even look at that. You had to look away. You couldn't even look at David's life. It was like a train wreck. You'd be like, oh my gosh. You see, God is able, even in that circumstance and in that situation, God is able to use it for good. If you love him, he will get you through the moments, the days, the weeks, the months, the years of pain. And God will eventually use it for good. In our lives, and if not in, our li if not in your life, David, I mean, he's going to comfort you, he's forgiven you. And it might not really work for you now, what happened in your life. But there's going to be so many others that are going to look and benefit from that tragedy in your life. You see how God can take something bad and work it out for good? Be you know why? Because this is not about, it's not about you. And it's not about me. David, as great as you are, it ain't about you. Why? This is about God's agenda. And if we can begin to appreciate that bigger picture, it will change our lives forever. We will be different people. God will eventually use it for good in our lives and also in the lives of others. And guess what? You might be a David in here this afternoon. Guess what? You're going to make it. David, train, I can't look, train wreck. But David, you're going to make it. Look at verse 29. Love it. For those, this is, remember, we're still in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, at that point, it would be easy to get off into election and Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? But let's not think about that for the minute. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? See, this is the part that we always forget when we quote, you know, it's all right, man, God's going to work it out for good. All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. How about next? How about the next verse? The next verse is that which is underpins the preceding verses. The reason why, whether good or bad, whether your fault or someone else's, the reason why you're going through that, I don't know. It might be the Lord caused it. It may not be. It might, it might be the devil who caused it. It might be you who caused it. It might be me who caused it in your life. But God will use it to do what? To conform you to the image of his son. And very often, what we are experiencing in some way is that being conformed. That molding. That, oh... That shaping. See? Like the clay in the hand of the potter. In order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. If he went through it, you, you know, how can you not expect to go through it? He's your brother. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience in Hebrews, how? Through the things which he suffered. Christianity in the 21st century needs reorienting. It needs a reorientation. Am I lying? But it's encouraging. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You will be glorified. I mean, look at Stephen. He seemed to be overcome. I mean, if you was there and you're looking, you'd be like, oh no, another train wreck. Turn your head. Oh, I can't even look. He seemed to be overcome, but he was actually the overcomer. Others may look at your life and think, oh my goodness, train wreck number three, don't look. You know when you're driving past an accident, something saying, no man, you can't look, I can't look, I don't want to look, it's, it's going to be horrible, but everything in you wants to look. Don't look! Unless you're going to phone the ambulance or go over and assist them, right? Others may look at at your life, like they looked at Stephen's life and thought, oh no. That brother, that sister, it's over for them. They may look at you and think that you are being overcome. See, but they don't know what you ought to know. You may look, you may look at your own life, apart from others peering in and can't look. You may look at your own life and think, You're a loser. You're not a loser if you love God. If you don't love God, well, you will never win. I don't care how impressive you look now. 
if you don't love God, but you know what? You're not a loser, even if you look like one, if you love God. No one, it says in Romans 9 verse 33, no one who puts their trust in him will be put to shame. Now, it doesn't say you will never be put to shame, because sometimes you will look shameful. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross naked. The Bible says he despised the shame. He wasn't there hanging there looking, thinking, oh no, look at everybody looking at me. Mm -mm. He despised it. He wouldn't even allow that to get on him or into his thinking. But onlookers would look and say, mm -mm, can't look. How embarrassing. It's that train wreck number five now. Thinking that he has been overcome. See? There may be moments where you look like that. But ultimately, if you put your trust in him, you, you will not ultimately be put to shame. See, and that takes faith. You're not a loser. You're not a loser if you see things in the light of God's agenda. That's why Jesus would hang on the cross. The Bible says he did it. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Why? Because of the glory. How does it go? For the glory that was set forth before him. He knew it was coming. Don't watch. All right, I know I look like this now, but don't watch that. I know that your life is a wreck right now, but I'm not watching that. <laughs> I know my life's a wreck right now. I can't, I can't afford to watch that. Oh, I'm finished. You're finished. You just need someone to come over and say, your life's a wreck. And that's it. That's you. That's all you needed. It's the last straw to break the camel's back. You know what I'm saying, sis? That's all you need. But that's when you lose sight of God's agenda. You're not a loser if you see things in the light of his purpose, his agenda, and that you're a part of his purpose. Oh my gosh. We're so precious in his sight. Precious in his sight is the death of all his saints. To the fact where Jesus had to stand up at the right hand of the father when he saw Stephen being stoned. Okay. God has an agenda now. But getting back to our story. God had an agenda back then. And it was Jerusalem Judea and Samaria. And the time had come for these places to be effectively reached with the good news. We know the verse. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. In all Judea, not just Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria and even to the end or the uttermost parts of the earth. Wow, are we still in verse 1? At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I'm going to try and explain that next week. Can you see how the Lord is progressively working out his agenda? Can you see, when nearly finished, can you see how the Lord is using terrible circumstances to fulfill his purpose. If you can understand this, then nothing that you are confronted with 
will overcome you. It may phase you. It may temporarily knock you off course. It may knock you off balance. It might even knock you off your feet. But it won't knock you out. Yesterday, I glimpsed 10 minutes of a documentary on the life of Mike Tyson. It was on the bio channel on Sky. 10 minutes while I was taking a break from studying. (laughs) Now, Mike Tyson, by the way, this is not an endorsement for boxing. It's legalized brutality. Don't agree with it. Mike Tyson, now that's my perspective, right? I'm not trying to put that on you. Mike Tyson, at one point, he had 35 fights, right? 35 fights, how many wins? 35 wins. Listen, 32 of them wins were knockouts. 19 of that 32 were in the first round. He looked, hey. The umbrella was an animal. He looked as if he was going to... I mean, and this is before he even steps in the ring. He looked like he was going to be the greatest ever heavyweight boxer of all time. And you know what? It all went horribly wrong. He started well, but like Judas, he finished badly. On the other hand, you may have started badly, but you can finish well. The race is not given to the swift, but to those who endure it right to the end. Remember the tortoise in the hair? The proverbial fight is not over until, ding, 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 the last bell. Amen? In the midst of the fight, it is easy to give up. When you look back at the past, train wreck. It's easy to give up and it's easy to throw in the towel. It's easy to quit. We forget, and this is the reason why we want to quit, we forget that it's not about us. We forget that God has an agenda. Have you forgotten this morning that God has an agenda? Let's pray. Lord, we are so fickle, yet you're so merciful. Father, we we fail you Consistently, We fail ourselves persistently. Yet we're encouraged. We're encouraged that we are not our own savior. We're encouraged that Jesus is our savior. Thank you, Father, that Jesus came to save those who have lives that look like a train wreck. And that's us. That's all of us here today. And Father, we ask that you'd give us hope. You'd give us encouragement in the face of the devil standing over us. On the floor, battered and bruised, about to say, I can't go another round. 
I thank you that you are the strong man who will bind the enemy. You are the, the captain of the host of the armies of the Lord. And we thank you that we're not encouraged to trust in ourselves, but encouraged to put our trust in you. The Apostle Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6 to be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. And he goes on to talk about prayer and we realize, Lord, that this is the place where we fight our best battle. It's on our knees. It's calling out and crying out to you, Lord, to be strong on our behalf. Thank you that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro the earth. Seems like you, you, you find it hard to find individuals whose hearts are blameless before you in order that you might show yourself strong on their behalf. Lord, show yourself strong on our behalf, we pray. For Jesus' sake, not even for our sake, for Jesus' sake, we pray. Because he's the only one that's worthy. Amen.